Hello, and welcome back to episode 34 of the Capital Spotlight Podcast. Your host, Craig McGrother, the Director of Business Development here at Lone Star Capital. Alongside the two-time author, Mr. Patek Philippe himself, Mr. Supply himself, Rob Beardsley. How are you today? I'm doing well. We're recording on a Friday. It's sunny out. Happy Friday. Yes, yes. Well, back to our regularly scheduled programming. I am not in my current office space as I am getting uh, a closet built to my studio right now. My office is being turned into a bedroom by a simple value creation hack, which is just putting up a closet. There is a window, there is a door, and now there's a closet making it technically a bedroom. So great way to create value. $1,400 creates a bedroom now. Bedrooms trade higher than an office naturally. So easy way to uh, spend some money to uh, naturally boost up the value of my home as I may be selling it coming up. But regardless, uh, now if I make it a rental, now it's a four bedroom. Uh, getting into the meat and potatoes though here, real briefly, I just want to talk about uh, a couple of items. Housekeeping, Rob Beardsley and myself will be at uh, Best Ever Conference in April, but before Best Ever Conference, we'll be at Race Fest in Phoenix coming up here, uh, I want to say in a couple of weeks, uh, the 22nd to the 24th. This should be airing, if I'm not mistaken, on the 12th. February 12th. So. Coming up then in call it a week, one, two, about 10 days from now is Race Fest in Phoenix. If you are going to be at Race Fest in Phoenix, please email me. And if you're looking just to raise capital, if you have a 1031 exchange, if you're looking to ways to learn to partner with Lone Star Capital, or if you're looking to find a great investment opportunity for, for uh, 2024 and beyond, please reach out to me as always. And of course, my email is craig, C-R-A-I-G at lscre.com. Before we get into the show, typically speaking, we like to talk about personal things at the end. We do the meat and potatoes first. But for everyone who's watching right now this on YouTube or ever mediums that this uh, is posted to, you may notice that Rob's face has a little uh, redness to it. Uh, so Rob, why don't you lead the way as to why that is, the significance of it, as we always like to give people to listen to this show and our community and our friends uh, and the ecosystem here at Lone Star Capital uh, the latest and greatest of what we're up to that benefits and adds value to our life to give that gift back to you to help you live your life the best way possible. So Rob, the floor is yours. Yeah, so this is not a tan. This is actually the results of a halo facial laser. So the halo laser is a very advanced laser. Uh, you might have heard of IPL or microneedling or a chemical peel. You know, at the end of the day, all of these things do one thing and that's caused damage to your skin and then with the hope or well with the effect of causing your body to replenish and to regrow the skin to be younger healthier more elastic more collagen uh, removing <clears throat> redness wrinkles acne scarring uh, brown spots and things like that so the halo laser is the most advanced and kind of the best bang for your buck when it comes to all these different lasers. And that's why I've gravitated towards it because if you have the money for it, it ranges from somewhere between, I don't know, maybe a thousand to $1,500 or so. So it's not the cheapest solutions, but it is such a good bang for your buck because as you can see, I don't have a ton of pain and sorrow. It does hurt. It is very painful, but the downtime isn't so bad. Like you could do a chemical peel and for a week you could look like a nightmare. But with this, the downtime and is pretty minimal. Not, you don't want to be in the sun either after a chemical peel too, if I'm not mistaken. You don't want to be in the sun. Not that you want to be either. in the sun after any of this, but but it's a longer delay is what I'm saying as opposed to what you've done. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So with, with downtime comes 
period of time of, of pain, of your face looking messed up, and of not being able to be in the sun. So it, with the halo laser, you get a lot of deep, actual skin rejuvenation. And so it's not like you're just cosmetically looking better. You are really actually altering the cell makeup of your skin. And then also the downtime is not so bad. So you really get a fantastic result. So I do these about, I don't know, playing around with it twice a year, going to probably scale down to once per year. But it's just such a cheap hack if you look at the grand scheme of things as far as your appearance and you're maintaining your your youthful look uh, for years to come. So I think for 1500 bucks per year, it's a total no-brainer. Well, it's funny because, you know, here we are doing things to look young, although it would be a lot more creative and likely beneficial if we, you know, had some grays. Although, as we've started to point out, I'm actually getting some grays on the side of my head here, close. So uh, it's exciting. I'll probably be more trustworthy and, and the capital raising process will only become easier. Trustworthy, clean shaven face, of course, per uh, any sales individual. If you're not clean shaven, you should be. Um, but interestingly enough, Halo Laser. So that is the new way that is the best product out there seemingly from the research that you've done and also the research that research that i've conducted myself being someone who is more fair skin living in the desert and liking to be in the sun sun just destroys my skin i try to wear sunscreen every single day you kind of need to out here in arizona those who say you don't need to wear sunscreen are certainly not irish uh, or scottish or english from the uk northern european area if you're northern european like me you need sunscreen every single day so i do that i believe you do as well but what I've done. I just lost your audio. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. So what I have done is the grade below the laser, which is microneedling. So I've got microneedling done twice. It's been actually some time, but similar premise, just less effective is what you've done. But, you know, my skin, I get a lot of sun marks and whatnot. Uh, I don't know how to the camera is, but you can see a lot of freckles, color unevenness. So effectively, what you're doing is trying to accomplish what I'm doing as well. And we'll do so hopefully at some point this year, because uh, we're gonna make so much money. I'm gonna have all this extra cash. I'm gonna uh, invest it right back into my skin, of course. But you can see there's some redness, there's some discoloring to make it one kind of skin, one kind of tone. The person whose skin I actually think about the most, um, when I think about like good skin, this is going to be funny, but Odell Beckham Jr., if you want to Google it, it looks like he's got zero pores. It's like the most flawless, perfect skin you'll ever see in your life. Uh, so that's kind of what I think about when I want to have nice looking skin is the OBJ, the Odell Beckham Jr., the wide receiver for the Baltimore Ravens now. To get that skin, make it all smooth, make it all flush, uh, really, really uh awesome look but you know keeping um everything as best as possible keeping your skin as nice as possible being smooth is uh great so it's so awesome that you in fact have done that had made the leap and you know people ask oh well, your skin's so nice already why are you doing it well i guess the question back to you is your skin is so nice you do look so young i mean you don't look like a baby but you know you have a very youthful look why are you doing this outside of the benefits you mentioned before is there any other reasons outside of that as well that you want to kind of dive deep deep deeper into i think it's just longevity i think that the stuff that we do now, we're going to thank ourselves 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. And it's kind of the same thing as investing. The compounding nature of these things really, they do compound. So it's much easier to be proactive than try to go back in time and fix a problem. For example, and I think this is actually an interesting segue, we could talk about hair loss, right? It's a whole lot easier to keep the hair that's on your head than it is to regrow once you've had some balding. And so it's the same thing with having good skin. So, but before we move on, I would definitely be remiss if I didn't talk about some of the heavy hitters 
that are musts in the skin uh in the skincare world so that would be tretinoin and i believe you're on tretinoin and we've i've evangelized proselytized many people to get on tretinoin and that is basically just a prescription that you get from your dermatologist and it's a uh, cream that you put on at night and what it does is it makes your skin hyperactive so you turn over your cell turnover is much faster so you're producing new skin at a faster rate and it really is a miracle drug so tretinoin is an incredible thing to do and that also the benefits of tretinoin compound over time so the more you use it the better it works so if you google tretinoin transformations you'll see people that have been using it for 10 years and they look their skin looks fantastic so tretinoin that's a heavy hitter and that's also a really cheap thing so if you can't afford a halo which i'm sure everybody listening since our audience is high net worth everyone can afford a halo but also everyone's accredited naturally yes yes everyone's accredited so yeah everyone should also be on tretinoin that's such a no-brainer like you said uh, you'd be doing yourself a disservice by not putting on sunscreen whenever you're out in the sun because that is the number one harm to your skin and face. And then I would say that's pretty much it. I don't know if you have any other tips or anything that you swear by. Well, well you, met, you, you mentioned this before, so let's just dive deeper into it. As the number one salesman of this product who's never been paid or compensated from the endorsements or the free ads that I've given them, but once more, finasteride, Propecia. Speaking of hair and whatnot, keeping it, I've actually been off it for a year now, but I'll probably go back to it again just to reboost it. Uh, I know, I know, I you know. You should not but be off of it. We're holding on. Listen, we're, we're holding on nicely, okay? We're pretty thick here. It's as good as I can ask for. You know, if you told me when I was, uh, call it 22, when I started noticing a, a, the Great Recession just starting ever so slightly, not in the economy, but on my forehead, uh, seeing that there, I got on Propecia right away. It's been very good to me. The thickness is solid. I think I have pretty good genetics to hold my hair. But for all the guys out there, my friends, Propecia, Propecia, for the bros. This is a male-only product, so for the women, tune this out. Uh, but if you have a boyfriend that listens to the show or a husband who's losing it, Listen, this is curable. This is fixable for the most part. Okay, everyone's get different effects. Do your research, of course. But for hymns, uh, Romans, generic stuff, not expensive. Do it. You'll thank yourself later. You know, being bald at this point is not going to say entirely up to you, but it is slightly fixable. Uh, so think about it or just get a hair transplant or, you know, you can be a big guy and just go chrome dome if you desire. Listen, The Rock's a good looking guy bald. Bruce Willis is bald. I don't think Craig McGrath would look that good bald. I think I have a big head. I don't think it'd be very good. I don't think my coloring is there. If I was, you know, a little bit tanner or from a different part of the world uh, and I was a little bit darker, maybe that the bald look would look nice for me, but I'm not that guy. So we're going to do everything we can to hold on to what we got. Also, you didn't get into this, but the unseen benefits of uh, the halo couple or as well as the uh, halo and microneedling is actually it's good for your hair because it gets blood flow going to it uh, in the scalp region. So uh, and just generally, if you're looking to kind of enhance what you have, if you're losing it quicker than you think, PRP is a very good solution to work around this as well. So think about it. PRP, very good. Um, and you're I advanced think, now. Yeah. So PRP, very good. Propecia, good. I would say um, minoxidil yeah. is more important than PRP. Well, that's part of the big, sure. big three. Do you want to get into the big three? And I'm not talking about, you know, the NBA and the OOs and the teens, but the big three for the hair hair products. Yeah, sure. I would say finasteride is number one for sure. And then because, and also we didn't really explain what finasteride is, but finasteride is no. <laughs> a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, which is the enzyme which causes 
uh, testosterone in your body to convert into DHT. And the cause of male pattern baldness is we have certain spots on our head that are DHT sensitive. And those are typically here at the crown and then also the vertex at the top. And so those are just, those just so happen to be DHT sensitive spots on our head and the DHT causes the miniaturization of the hair follicles. So finasteride is, like I said, a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. So it inhibits the enzyme which converts testosterone into DHT. So there's less DHT on your scalp. You can take a finasteride pill, which then you reduce DHT throughout the entire body as well as the scalp, or you can use a topical finasteride, which will target just the scalp. But there's actually, if you do some research, there's actually a lot of health benefits of finasteride above and beyond just protecting your hair. I, I don't, I'm not well versed on it all off the top of my head, but it, it does seem like another one of those no-brainers miracle drugs and the side effects are extremely minimal it's a very well tolerated drug and it's one of the most widely prescribed drugs so i think that's so that's firstly it helps you keep your hair it doesn't necessarily help stimulate a ton of growth but it helps reduce the dht on your head which causes the miniaturization of the follicles now minoxidil on the other hand is a growth agonist so it, it promotes the growth of minoxidil and i thankfully uh don't know what I did to deserve this, but I have good hair and I have not needed to use minoxidil up to this don't point. Don't jinx it. <laughs> yeah, knock on wood. So I can speak to minoxidil, but I personally don't use it. Uh, but we have friends that use it. We have family that uses it. Minoxidil is Rogaine. That's the brand name, Rogaine. So of course, you've probably heard of that. And that is over the counter. And that actually helps your hair grow. So that's the big two is finasteride. You help keep what you have. And then minoxidil is you promote growth uh, as well. And then the third is a controversial one. It's ketoconazole shampoo. I've been on ketoconazole. I'm off of it now. I just use natural shampoo and I try to be as natural as possible. And I, I don't really think ketoconazole really deserves to be in the big three. I think the big two is finasteride and minoxidil. Also, we call it just fin and min. So those are the big two. Yeah. I mean, opinion. think about it this, you know, Propecia is LeBron James. Okay. And then Kyrie Irving for the Cleveland Cavaliers would be probably Minoxidil. And then Kevin Love, you know, Kevin Love or Chris Bosh. That's like the third person there for the big three. Yeah. I would say the new one is hair transplants. I mean, hair transplants. Well, listen, that, that that's that's kind of a, you know, that that's kind of like, hey, we're we're demolishing the stadium here. And then we're also changing the team name and colors and we're, and we're starting over. So we're kind of going like, you know, it's kind of like going Raiders moving from Oakland to Vegas, which is slightly different, but it's that's totally a transplant there. So it is a lot more encumbering or it's a lot more of an encumbrance to your life. Uh, we do have a friend who is maybe maybe or may, may or may not be a videographer that works with us who may or may not have gotten the influencer package in Turkey, which didn't cost him too much because he got it done in Turkey, one of the hubs for this operation. All very, very important. But, you know, these things well, as we get to it. Let are, me interrupt very, you. Yeah. Yeah, well, let me interrupt you because the thing about hair transplants is they are magic. It's incredible to see some of these transformations. <laughs> However, the thing is, if you transplant hair from the back of your head, which the back of your head does not have DHT sensitive hair follicles. So if you take those hair follicles and then let's say you put them at your hairline. So now hence you're the ha hence the cul-de-sac folks, by the way, hence. Hence the cul-de-sac that people get on their head 
um, when they when they lose their hair, it's typically here, right? They'll get some recession over here. That's where it's sensitive. And then it starts going here, and then it goes all the way back there. But this area, and all the bald dudes you'll see roaming around, they'll have it on the sides, right? So let me let me paint the picture. So if you take non-DHT sensitive hair follicles, and then you put them- I'm listening. I'm just going to get a pan for a second. Keep going. Yep, where it is sensitive. But if you don't take the precautions to stymie your hair loss, namely finasteride, right? Your hair is going to continue to recede and then the non-sensitive uh, follicles are going to remain, but then it's going to recede behind it and then you're going to have a really weird look. So if you are going to do a hair transplant, it is kind of the nuclear option and it does do wonders, but you do need to have the pharmacologic, pharmacological, I think I'm saying that right, interventions to ensure that you're going to do well to manage after your transformation. So you need the finasteride, you need the minoxidil. I, I hear from people, they go, I'm just going to let things go. I'm going to let things be. And then I'll just get a hair transplant. But no, you, you no, have the, to do you thin. can't let the forest, you can't let the forest burn down there. They're going to make you get on Propecia after you do the hair transplant. So just do it beforehand. Right. And if you're young guys, hello, we all know, let's just look yourselves in the mirror. The last thing you want to do is lie to yourself and pretend as if you have better hair than you do. Because you don't, okay? And it's a humbling thing to, to humble yourself. We all do things to manipulate our hair to accommodate what we've got going on. For instance, I put a little volume up here to neglect for the sides that I got a little recession here. It's not bad. It's natural. People it's are good envious of your hair, so you're not getting any sympathy from people. I'm, and I'm not, I'm not trying to curry favor or sympathy over here. That's not, that's not the point of this exercise. I'm just saying us men we're in this together this Be is not honest. a hey look at me yeah this is not a hey look at me i'm trying to one-up you okay it's not like you got out of bed and worked harder than someone else therefore you have better hair it's just you produce more dht and you're going to be more male pattern bald or hey guess what this all kind of typically spins off of the mom's dad so if you can honestly look at the family lineage um and look at your grandpa on the mom's side i think that's myth, where that by is the way. Really? Well, until it's been busted and we go on the Discovery Channel and the Mythbusters people come out here to debunk that, that's all we have to spin off for right now. But regardless, true, not. Look at the people around your family. And some people have better situations than not. I have better hair than a lot of my siblings. Two of my siblings, I have better hair than. It's okay, luck. one of my siblings, it's it's luck. It's luck of the draw. But also just with regarding Propecia, by the way, when you do take it, you're going to get potentially a little testicular pain. Okay. Last no, week, no, don't, don't scare people. No, it's not a big deal. It, it's it's not a big deal. It's just this is part of the process. So just know that. That's how you know it's working. Okay. Uh, but you're going to be on that. It's going to be fine. There's light at the end of the tunnel if you do the right things. Or you can just neglect it uh, and, and you'll have a bad, bad effect. Or no, you there's no, there's no, don't worry about the side effects. The side effects are very minimal. Also, you don't have to take the prescribed one milligram per day dosage. It's actually, studies show that the efficacy of finasteride is very strong, even at half that dosage. So me personally, I actually take a milligram uh, capsule three times a week. So Perfect. I'm only getting yeah. three milligrams per week as opposed to the prescribed or general prescription of seven milligrams per week. So I'm taking less than half. And based on the research and the data, it shows that even at that dosage level, you're still getting a very strong result there. So I think that's a great happy medium of result while very well limiting a lot of the downside risk associated with potential side effects which they are minimal to begin with so anyway i think that was a a pretty deep dive well, there. Wait, what one one may ask why 
a Rob Beardsley is taking such things. Can you give the camera just a, a quick spin around to show, maybe expose yourself? Just maybe is there angles and windows in which people aren't seeing as to why, or are you just taking this because you want to make so, sure you see? Yeah, so I'll beat. tell you, I'll tell you. And this is actually, really like, can you give a little spin in the chair just so everyone can see? Yeah. For for the record, there's no there's no silver dollar on the back of his head. Okay, there's there's no baldness. All right. So, <laughs> so let's, I, let's just get, okay. let's just flush this out. At 21, I started noticing I was losing a ton of hair. I would comb. I remember this, by the way. Yeah, you were I, over at Arizona. You're like, what the heck's going on? And I think I was the one that got you on Propecia. Yeah, you were. You that? were. So I would wake up in the morning. I would look at my pillow and I would see all this hair on my pillow, and I was freaking out. And I start you know combing my hair. And I'm seeing all this hair in my comb, seeing it on the pillow. And that was very frightening. So I wasn't sure what was going on. Am I just simply shedding or am I actually balding? And so honestly, to this day, I don't really know the answer. But it was it really scared me into doing hours of research and figuring this stuff out and putting myself in the best position to defend against uh, this ailment. So yeah, that's that's what kind of spurred me to action. I mean, I'm very thankful for the hair that I do have on my head. Uh, what I will say, though, is that rewind back to 19, I had twice as much hair on my head. I had so much. It was such a thick head of hair. So I've lost a ton of hair, but it's still it's still looking real good. I was 6'6 six, six back in the day because I had about three inches deep everywhere of the hair going up here. Okay, you can go back to my social media. I, I was very thick. My, I had very thick, a lot, lot more thick of hair. I'm very grateful for what I've got right now because guess what? We've all seen this before. We've all been 22 where everyone's in the best shape of their life. A carb can't stick to their hips. And then we get to 28, we get to 29, we get to 30, which is where I am. Rob's turning the corner to get to the latter part of his 20s, really the, the back nine of it. I mean, technically you're on the 10th hole, 11th hole, if you will. But you're going to get older. And what you're going to notice is that people that are your age will start to get older too. And some people take better care or worse care of themselves. The hair starts getting worse. You don't go to the gym as much. Maybe life's beating you down a bit. Next thing you know, you got a little bit of a spare tire for a stomach and whatnot. Your hair doesn't look as good. Your skin doesn't look right because you're probably not taking care of yourself, getting sunlight and whatnot. Take care of these things, gentlemen. Um, I can only really speak to men because I'm not obviously a woman. Uh, last I checked, I don't plan on changing anytime soon either, just for the record. Uh, but having said that, uh, you got to be very careful about this stuff. You got to take care of it. Take care well, of your last health. point take care because, of mm -hmm. because I, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, well, last point before it's I never forget. happened on this show before. Yeah. And, and also I can't believe we spent this much time talking about this, but <laughs> so the, the point also is people start going bald way sooner than they think. Right. So I, yeah, yeah. I had this argument I, with my I dad love because my dad thinks, oh, well, my hair just always was this way or, oh, well, I don't know when this happened. And so the reality is male pattern baldness really starts occurring in early 20s. Early 20s is when it starts. So you want to start taking finasteride as early as possible, frankly, uh, even if you don't really see any signs. And so, and the thing about hair is we have so many follicles on our head that it really does take a ton of hair loss to actually notice a difference up here. So you've got to see a ton of hair in the shower drain or in the sink or in your comb before you really actually start seeing a difference up here. So it really does pay to be proactive and think about it. But anyway, let's let's move on. I think that was for those that are actually going to take action. This could be the most important podcast they've ever listened to. But for many that just listen to this, they probably are thinking, what the heck are they talking about? Yeah, the answer is if you've been thinking about this or you've been hiding it, 
you're already late, but it's not too late. So don't double, don't, don't chase another bad decision with a bad decision by not acting act with that said, let's talk about the incredible event that we had in Newport beach. It was so fun and so awesome to see some of the investors that I've spoke with on the phone so many times. You know who you are. I would name drop, but I'm like, you want me to name drop? So I'm not going to name drop. But thank you so much for everyone who came out uh, to that event. And, you know, obviously, Rob, you're, you're bummed to have not have been there. It was not the most ideal and optimal uh, week trip you had in California. We had so much planned. We had so much set up. But the great thing is why you build a team. This is why you delegate out. This is why you've got two people going to conferences, you and myself, because, you know, if, if you know, QB1 is out, QB2, myself has got to come in and, and throw the balls and take the snaps, right? So with that said, thank you everyone who came to the Newport uh, Mixer. We're also going to be having a Houston well, share event. Share it's more about uh, how many people came, where was it? Yeah, what, yeah. What was it about? You know, actually yeah. help, help tell, me, tell me because I wasn't even there. I, I got the flu and I had to miss my own event. Yeah. So I think about 30 people came, including Lone Star employees. So all in about 30, you know, coming in and out throughout the entirety of the event. We hosted it in Newport Beach, California uh, at the Lido House, for those who know, which is right on Balboa, Balboa Island, which is, you know, the peninsula. Uh, beautiful there. We've got so many friends that are personally from there. It has a really special place in my heart because the girl I was dating in college was from there. So I got to go there a bunch. Uh, and that was incredible. I've always really enjoyed Newport Beach. It really is when people think about California and, you know, how absurd the taxes are, you know, if you're living in Bakersfield, I, I don't understand why the heck you are living there and paying those taxes. But when you get to Newport Beach, it's like, oh, this is why. And this is what people are talking about. This is why. But naturally, Newport in the Southern California area has got a lot of family offices, a lot of um, big equity groups out there, private equity groups. We met with a lot of them, of course, in IMN, Laguna, or I did, I should say, and then also, of course, in San Diego uh, for NMHC. But it was really great to get face-to-face -face with more of our friends and family, our personal network, and you know, the retail investors, as we call it, uh, the people who invest through our tranche, the Lone Star tranche, because, of course, we bring out our capital to our deals. That's not necessarily our capital, but... But it was really nice. It was a good mix of capital raisers as well as our investors who, you know, really high net worth, savvy people, but never met us before. Um, so I think they're always surprised by how young we are. Uh, I got several times, it's kind of funny that I look taller uh, in person than I do on Zoom. So for those who are wondering, I'm six foot three, a slouch six foot three. Some argue on this podcast that I should call myself six five, but I won't do it. Six five. Uh, but that said, yeah, nah, nah. maybe with my hair up and my high heels on, I'm 6'5". Uh, but I am 6'3". Uh, I do slouch a little bit. Uh, but with that said, it was really uh, an awesome time with everyone there. Um, just good conversation all around. And we will be hosting more, I think, West Coast events. I think we're going to keep uh, the Sharon Heights or A Country Club a nice location for a Bay Area kind of holiday mixer. Thank you to, of course, all the incredible LPs and capital partners we have uh, in the Silicon Valley Bay Area tether that around Christmas as naturally we're going to be out there regardless. So that's a nice one. And then uh, a coupled with that will likely be a um, post NMHC or just maybe a West Coast kind of mixer happy hour, probably once a year, I would guess at some point, maybe a one day kind of seminar or conference in the future, potentially just for those who are in the West Coast that just can't make it out to New York. So be curious to know if that's something you'd thought about, something you'd be interested in. And we have some what pretty cool we have some pretty cool events in the works that I'm looking forward to rolling out. So we, of course, have our flagship LSC Summit in September. That's here at the One World Trade Center. September 16th. Buy your tickets. Well, actually, that's, that's going to be a big one. And we're continuing to level it up. And we made big jumps this year in quality and the luxuriousness and, and everything, the organization of it. And this coming year is going to be on an, an even higher level as far, as far as no expense being spared. And then we're also leveling up this year 
as you were just about to allude to, by making it application only. So you can't buy tickets anymore. You have to apply to to join us for the event. Uh, so we welcome you to apply, and it's going to be a great event. Do you want to put a show link in there? So we'll mind it. It'll be below uh, for YouTube. Hopefully, we'll start integrating where we do things like this. It'll actually pop up below. Uh, but Yeah, it's lscsummit.com. Uh, yeah, so can you explain maybe, and we actually weren't even thinking about this, but this is a great segment and topic, why we want to shift to this model, the importance of this, um, why we want to do it this way. Uh, maybe kind of elaborate your thoughts, because I think you said before it was more of a multifamily conference, but now we want to make this the premier commercial real estate conference and make it very private. So please elaborate maybe to the thought process and maybe the shift uh, as to why. Okay, so... What we typically do for our annual LSC Summit is we invite the cream of the crop of our network. So we're inviting family offices, we're inviting our biggest investors, we're inviting potential investors that we're looking to build a bigger relationship with. So these are private equity firms and big investors. And that's who we look to. I mean, we, in, we invite a lot of people and obviously previously the public was able to just purchase tickets and attend. But the real goal was to invite people in our network or that we're getting to know and get them in and really show them the best about Lone Star Capital through this intense two-day event. So what we noticed though was when you invite these big private equity firms and they're essentially LP capital, what they're really looking to get out of an event is to obviously learn things. People want to learn things at conferences, but what they really go to conferences for is to meet people. And an LP is looking to meet high quality sponsors that they can get deal flow with, uh, deal flow from, and eventually partner with. And one thing that we noticed was we weren't providing a ton of that sort of value to LPs that were attending our event because it was we, we so were, yeah, LP we, heavy. We were really helping ourselves, which of course we're the one putting it on. It was really just more of a, hey, this is a Lone Star ad and make us a center of attention, which most people run these conferences. They make it about them, which, hey, that no one's making anyone coming. No one's putting a metaphorical gun to their head saying you have to come and this is about us. But we really want to make it not about us, not put ourselves, ourselves in the pedestal, but make the audience and the people that we're cultivating to be the show, to be the important part, to have that there, to have the best thought leadership in industrial real estate and, you know, office maybe in, you know, read whatever it may be, the, the best of the best in their specific field. And you're probably not going to have another Texas multifamily sponsor there, but maybe we'll have a West Coast multifamily person that's there, right? Yeah. So let, let me explain that. So it, like I said previously, we have had a lot of investors in the room but then there weren't that many sponsors. So an investor would come and they'd get value from learning more about us and everything. But we think that if we can level up the event and create a better mix of best-in-class sponsors and really high-quality investors, we can have everybody come and leave feeling really, really good about the event, which of course selfishly makes them feel good about us because we're the ones putting on the event. So it's selfless, but it's also selfish because we're going to benefit in the end. So the concept is rather, and I know this is kind of crazy because, and this was the crazy thing about selling tickets to the public and people who didn't come before were blowing it and totally missing out. And they've missed out this opportunity because now it's not open to the public. But before you could just buy a ticket and join into a room where we're inviting all of our most coveted relationships and all of our best investors. 
that's an that's an insane thing and a lot of people would call us crazy for being so open and not secretive with these relationships you're, you're literally allowed to meet a hundred millionaire or multiple sons of millionaires in that room Thank, frankly that were were there not to and billionaires as well before yeah i mean you are getting access to incredible people so uh it's almost like it was so special why are we even doing it in that in that form and why don't we kind of have a, a larger gatekeeping process kind of like the ascent model in miami right Exactly. So now what we realize is we need to have a healthier mix of sponsor and capital in order for people to really mesh and connect and get a lot out of the event. But what we don't want to do is fill up the room with a bunch of our direct competitors, people in multifamily value add, people in Texas multi. So we're going to shy away from that. But people that are complementary to us that we don't directly compete with, like you said, people that are in industrial, people that are in development because we only do acquisitions or people that are in office or retail, other real estate related stuff that our LPs or our target LPs would be interested in as well, but it's not going to necessarily take money out of our pocket because if people have a Texas multifamily allocation, we hope that it's coming our way. So, well, and also we know a lot of people that you know, let's say just a group like Pearlmark, right? Pearlmark does multifamily and they do industrial. Okay, great. Well, why wouldn't we try to have just for instance, an industrial group that's commercial real estate, but it's a totally different product than us. Why wouldn't we want to cozy up and develop a relationship with the best and brightest we feel that is basically the Lone Star Capital of industrial real estate. So therefore we can share referrals, we can share network. It's not directly competing against us, but they probably know a PIMCO. They are going to know a Midlock or an XYZ person where we can share these referrals. And since it's all the same caliber, it's not taking away from each other. And it's a mutually beneficial transaction in that regard. So that's really the environment and the group of people we're trying to attract and seek for this newest iteration of our conference. Yeah, I think we can build an incredible Lone Star family of people that are fellow sponsors, that are best in class, potential investors, and really this will allow us to grow the network because I feel like the event could only get so big based on our previous model, but now we can really scale this up and have a lot more people come. Well, that's not exactly the goal because we really enjoy the intimacy of the event and being able to sit down, smoke a cigar with somebody, have a, a nice dinner and things like that, which we will continue to do, absolutely. Uh, but this can also naturally scale while allowing it to continue to feel intimate. So super excited about this adjustment in strategy and idea behind the summit. Uh, so yeah, we'll see how it goes. So on top of that as well, just to kind of put this, wrap it up, put it with a bow, we want to have the best and brightest. We want to make sure that also when you inbound and apply for it, we know what you're looking for. We know who to match you up with and pair you up with because the value, as you alluded to earlier, is the networking. Well, if we know what you're looking for and we know what the equity people are looking for if you're a sponsor, putting those items together and making sure that you get the most of your value makes this a home run, how could you not event and creates the value. If you're going to spend, I don't know what the price is, but let's just say it's $4,000 to come and you raise, you know, $10, $50 million from, from those people attending the event, that is the easiest $4,000 you've ever spent in your entire freaking life. And there's no two ways about that. So think about the value from that perspective. Think about the upside there. Um, this will be more of a gate capped, tight niche, tight knit, 
and selective process moving forward. But I think it's honestly a perfect setup for Lone Star, kind of who we are, what we're looking for. Um, everyone probably will be required, I assume, to wear a suit and tie if you're a gentleman. Uh, and similarly, uh, hire a nice quality uh, lady work attire as well uh, for the event, I would have to imagine. It will likely, of course, be in the One World Trade Center, where you can only get office space there, or sorry, uh, event space there if you are, in fact, a tenant, which we are, of course, giving us incredible panoramic views of the city. Uh, but most importantly, I believe we're doing it in the same room as before, uh, an iconic view of an iconic statue, which is the Statue of Liberty. So how can you not love that? And then, of course, probably going to burn it down, not burn it down, but enjoy and rent out the entire uh, reserve cut room, which will be special. So it'll be five star, five uh, all class, all the way, any way you slice it. So we're very excited about that. So that goes to the long-winded answer and response with regards to the Newport event, uh, Beach event. Going into what's coming up on the horizon, we're going to have an event in Houston, correct? So if you're going to be in Houston on, is it the 12th or the 11th? I think it's the 12th, March, March 12th. March 12th, we're having a mixer happy hour as well, maybe at one of our newest properties, I would imagine. Yes. Uh, so we'll be having a mixer there and we invite our friends and family and LP investors or prospective capital partners, prospective partners, whatever you want to call it. Have uh, actually email myself and if you would like to attend and we can see if it's a good fit and we can disclose the location then. But we are looking to meet with as many people as possible here in the year and uh, no better way to do it than uh, to come to one of our mixers if we're uh, in town. Yeah, super looking forward to it. Can't be meeting in person. So we're going to continue investing in our relationships as well and and with an in-person focus. Absolutely. Well, with that said, let's get to the first meat and potatoes topic, which this is probably the longest uh, time we've gone with actually not talking real estate uh, on this show. We're almost, I think, 45 minutes deep and we haven't talked a single lick about real estate, but here we are, debt inner workings. So what did you want to speak about this topic? Because I believe you put this in for the agenda. So take it away. Yeah, we had an investor this past week ask a couple what to me feels like basic questions about how debt works in our business. But then I thought, wow, you know, actually, these are pretty fundamental things that I think a lot of people probably don't actually know. And so I thought of this podcast would be a great medium to share more information about the nitty gritty nuances of how the debt works in our business. So specifically, I want to talk about the actual process from signing a deal up at application, going under loan application, and then going through due diligence with the lender. And then here, Kent, Kent is blowing me up. He wants me to sign the Cortland PSA. Uh, that's exciting. Yeah, we're going to sign today. So so uh, knock on wood. Yeah, everything should be fine. And if you're an investor uh, or capital raiser looking to learn about our opportunities to invest in them, if you're a capital raiser, you're probably too late for this one if you're not already in it currently because this one filled up right away. But if you want to be on the VIP distribution, List, let me know. Email me at craig at lscre.com. If you are a retail investor looking to invest in the best deal that you have seen in Houston in the last decade, this is the one. I don't know if it really is, but it's actually really sweet. So you should probably take a look at it. Of course, email me. You know the email. Proceed with what you're saying, please. Yeah. So that's that's a cool shout out. And of course, this is a 506B offering. So there's only so much we can say. And this is not, of course, a solicitation uh, to to sell or purchase securities. Anyhow, so with, <laughs> so with the debt process, right, you go under loan app and then you have to go through the lender due diligence. And only once you get through lender DD, and I'll, I'll dive in more specifically here, but once you get through all that, only then are you able to actually rate lock. And this, I'm focusing mostly on the agency process. So that'd be Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac debt. 
And so also this is only relevant for fixed rate debt, which of course, fixed rate debt is pretty much the only debt that we're doing right now. And really that's the bulk. I mean, we only have a couple floating rate deals. So fixed rate is what we mostly do. And the thing about fixed rates is it's funny because fixing your interest rate reduces the risk of the investment once you close. But actually, banking on a fixed rate increases the risk and volatility of your deal before you close. Because once you go under application, you are not locking your rate. Your rate is fixed, but once you close. In the meantime, your all-in rate is going to be subject to fluctuations in treasuries as well as the lender perhaps changing what they're going to charge in a lender spread. And I'll get into the specifics of what those things are. But that's the really important thing that I want to convey because a lot of people in this volatile time are asking a lot of questions like, hey, did you lock the interest rate yet? Or if we tell investors, hey, the rate's not locked yet, then they misconstrue that to mean that the rate is floating. It's like, no, 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 we're doing a fixed rate loan, but we haven't fixed the rate yet. We actually lock the rate usually just a couple days or maybe a couple weeks before closing. And that's just subject to our ability to early rate lock and to have our ducks in a row uh, from a lender due diligence standpoint. So yeah, that was what I wanted to talk about. So I don't know if you want to ask me any specific questions or just let me kind of go step by step through it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny. I did this because investors' hands kind of get shaky when when they see that treasuries are going down. If they are a little more seasoned, they understand the profile. Uh, you know, we put in a projected, you know, soft cost for baking in for the interest rate. We've typically cut, like to come in higher, just like we do for insurance and all the other variable costs there, uh, in hopes that we beat those projections, which uh, when we won't change the underwriting there when it's done to give you an updated version, um, as things are kind of fluid and tentative throughout the process, of course, especially on the takeover. Uh, but I just want to point that that uh, that out there. And with that said, what is a typical time to rate lock? You know, what if you're you know halfway through um, the escrow period once PSI, uh, the PSA is done? Can you rate lock rate lock early if you feel like it's a how could you not situation? When do you do that? Where does your discretion come into play? When do you really start thinking about this? What's the earliest you can rate lock? What's the end you can rate lock? Kind of really dive into the weeds here if you don't mind. Yeah, there are a few programs from Fannie and Freddie that are early rate lock programs. So you can do like a streamlined early rate lock, but those cost more, right? Nothing's free. So if you're going to go through that process, you're going to have to still get a lot of DD done up front, but you're going to also pay more in the rate. So to me, that's not super attractive. And generally speaking, you're not really able to rate lock until you've actually gotten your appraisal, you've gotten your environmental done, and you've gotten the property condition assessment done. So you need those major third-party reports to be done. You need the lender to sign off on them. You need the lender to sign off on your org chart and on your legal docs. All that takes a lot of time to get through, right? You got to get through the legal, you got to get through the third parties, and then you're able to rate lock. So for example, for Aspire, the deal that we're closing next week, we were able to rate lock, what was it, last week now? Which was a really fantastic thing because we had a solid downtick in treasuries and we were able to opportunistically, boom, lock the rate. Oh, and let's not forget, locking the rate bears a ton of risk because when you lock the rate, Fannie and Freddie are actually trading the bonds in the market. So they're actually purchasing securities 
And so they require a 2% good faith deposit from us, the borrower, in order to do that bond transaction. So if you're doing a $20 million loan, you have to put up 400K that's non-refundable. So if you end up walking away from the deal for any reason after rate locking, you are walking away from a big number. You're walking away from that. And that's separate from the EMD, the earnest money deposit, which should be, you know, on a $20 million deal, just to give people an understanding. What does that look like? Is that, you know, 1% customary, like in residential real estate? Is it bigger? Is it more? Is it less? My guess would be, of course, it's market condition um, and what the market looks like, depending upon how hot or how soft it is. But elaborate on that maybe perhaps as well. Yeah. EMDs are about 1% to 2%. So you could be looking at a 200K EMD. Maybe there's some extensions that you paid for as well. So you might be up for 400K and then you've got 400K in good faith deposit. Yeah, you, you might be almost a million bucks in. You, you're, you're probably with those numbers, soft costs on top of, you know, doing thirds and, you know, getting your lawyers to take care of the LOI and sifting through that language there, getting the PSA set up. You might be caught 650 to a million dollars deep into this deal pre-closing. So there are a multitude of costs when it gets into this space, which does create what a nice moat around the business because you also have to have the bank sheet to allow yourself to qualify for said loan to get the agency debt there. But it is pretty crazy to think about uh, the nuances surrounding this. You and Kent obviously have done such a good job or I don't have to think about things like this, but if you're an emerging sponsor, my gosh, do you have a lot to sort out and work out? There's so much stress and day-to-day -day, uh, operation items that are so important. And of course, now you hire someone like myself and the other team members to take care of the roles where you just think about the, you know, these things and you basically delegate the, you know, the outreach, stuff like that to myself. But I just really tip the cap to you and Kent for before really the team was here to streamline this process, how much you guys were really handling because every, every little nook and cranny of the business you guys were touching, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Starting anything is is super tough and it takes a huge initial lift. But yeah, so just to get back to the debt side, that is one point as to why you may not want to rate lock, even if you are in a position to rate lock, which normally we don't dilly dally. If we have gotten through all of the lenders hoops to be able to rate lock, we'll probably go ahead and rate lock. And our philosophy surrounding locking the rate is if the deal works at today's number, meaning the treasury, right? And so let me also... Uh, set that up as well for people that aren't familiar with how the all-in rate comes together. So if you're, let's say, doing a five-year loan, which we've been doing a lot of five-year agency loans, you your interest rate is actually comprised of an index rate, which in this case would be the five-year U.S. Treasury yield plus a lender spread. So the lender is going to look at the five-year U.S. Treasury yield, which you're going to hate to hear this, but today is 4.15%. Treasuries Ooh. are up 27 basis points today, which is exactly just insane and why it is so stressful to do a fixed rate loan because from the time you go under contract to the time you rate lock, rates can fluctuate an insane amount and can actually totally transform the economics of your deal and cause you to actually have to walk away like we did last year on 1001 Ross because rates went up so crazy. Kent and I actually decided that it made more sense to walk away from nearly a million dollars rather than close the deal. It was an insane thing. I know we talked about this story a while ago on the podcast, so I won't dive into it again, but rates are really serious. And the crazy thing is, is if we would have chosen to float instead of fix, well, the funny thing is about floating rates is, yes, they float, but they're not as volatile. They don't go up randomly 
27 basis points like they did today, which is a crazy move. I mean, we're talking about right now, treasuries are so volatile right now, which makes it even harder to transact in what is already a difficult market to transact. Because what, what happens when you have this type of volatility, it forces a buyer like us in the market to bake in extra cushion in our projected interest rate in case moves like today happen. So thankfully, on the deals that we are doing and that we have under contract, we have baked that cushion in. And guess what? Today just ripped through our cushion and now we're right at that number. So it shows you that when you have to bake in such a cushion, you're going to offer a lower price to the seller. And that's going to further the gap between buyer and seller. So the bid-ask gap is widened by volatility. When you have a calm market, buyer and seller can meet more closely. So right now are super crazy times. It's not for the faint of heart. You're taking a lot of risk when you put a deal under contract because the market, specifically interest rates, are subject to change. So that was a little bit of a digression. But to get back to it, your interest rate is comprised of the index rate, which in this case would be a five-year treasury, and then plus a lender spread, right? The lender needs to make money. So the lender is going to add on something around 2% on the interest payment for themselves, basically. So if like today, the five-year treasury yield is 4.15, let's say the lender spread is 1.85%, that would mean your all-in interest rate is 6% to us, the borrower. And we projected 6% for Aspire. And of course, where did we come in? 5.72%. So we, of course, here at Lone Star, love to underpromise and overdeliver. And we did, in fact, just do that. So thank you so much for the comprehensive breakdown there. We do often get asked, well, what's your, you know, your, your debt profile? What's kind of your philosophy there? So what I tell everyone, fund manager, capital raiser, you know, joint venture equity people, we're looking for fixed rates at, and, you know, I actually had a conversation that's very spirited before this in a positive way, um, in the sense that, Mike, I eventually want to get to the point where we do 10-year debt on deals, and we, you know, have investors who see the value of lower returns in the sense that, yes, on a longer time horizon, your IRR will get compressed, um, your equity multiple likely be higher, but your IRR is more compressed, but it is so much safer uh, from that profile. And there's likely going to be a capital event if you hold it for that whole 10 years, which is a refinance and whatnot. But it's very challenging to lose money if you you know hold deals with the right debt and equity profile, doing these deals, you know, long-term debt, not getting too levered. Um, yes, your returns might get compressed, but guess what? Your safety is there and the long-term mindset is there. There's almost no way you can't push rents and property value for highest and best use with a commercial multifamily deal um, should you hold it for 10 years with you know, proper management on it. So we, we love the premise of that. And you know that's not for everyone. There's been a lot of hot money in the space and business that wants to flip very quickly with you know bridge, floating rate debt um, situations. Um, so just something to think about there. Uh, yeah, so let me... Let me add, let me go finish the point about our philosophy of locking the rate. So a lot of people would want to play the game of trying to time the market. So let's say they're in a position to rate lock, but I, I have a question for you. Let's say we're in a position to rate lock, but today happened and rates went up 27 basis points. Well, do you lock today and hope to stop the bleeding or do you take your chances and see where rates are on Monday and hopefully rates come down a bit and then lock on Monday? Or do you wait until Tuesday and rates come down even more, right? So it's a very stressful thing. And obviously also it's gambling because you don't know the future. So it, the, the our philosophy is if the deal works at today's rates, let's just lock it and put the conversation to bed. Let's not gamble 
on the future movement of treasuries and see if we can do ourselves better, right? It's very rare that you're going to lock right at the the near-term bottom and then rates pop up, but that's you know essentially what happened. We locked at what? A 5-year rate of 3 384 and then it's 415 today. That's a huge move. So we got super lucky and that's going to benefit our deal a lot. Our investors are going to get more cash flow. It's really great. So but the opposite could happen as well. And, and that's why you need the cushion. And that's why you need to not play games. And just if the numbers make sense, you lock. And if the number doesn't make sense, you need to have a conversation with the broker because you need a price adjustment ASAP from the seller in order to proceed. And this is a, a very large reason as to why transaction volume was down substantially last year, because of course, sellers couldn't get the numbers to make it make sense for them and their theoretical projections. But on top of that, what happened? Well, a lot of deals with fixed rate debt, which was kind of the motion and the hot kind of button and way to size up deals of last year with volatility, with, you know, floating rate debt and shorter term debt, uh, you know, deals not making as much sense with volatility of the treasuries made, you know, locks it, locking deals really, really challenging because in these whole processes we saw, we got caught in, you know, debt was going like this. And once you're locked in, the purchase price is the purchase price, but the deal becomes less and less attractive as the debt gets less, less attractive, of course. So it was making last year very challenging. Um, this year, it's very volatile. What we like to do is buffer and cushions and basically all of our underwriting for things we can't fix and control, which is, you know, insurance, uh, you know, interest rates, things of that nature. Obviously, you could probably cite a couple other items that we do that in for the inner workings of our underwriting as you're a lot more privy to that as I am. Um, but something to think about is how we structure that and the cushioning there. And, you know, deals really have been getting blown, gotten blown up by, uh, you know, the volatility there. So all, you know, can be fun or not fun things, depending upon uh, where you sit uh, in the in the process, whether you're a buyer or a seller. But, you know, I'll say this, no one wants volatility one way or another. I think uh, as long as it's consistent and safe or, you know, you know, not floating or, or, or changing too much, that's when transactions, you know, become a lot more seamless uh, and viable. So looking forward to smoother waters, you know, more glassy waters as opposed to a choppy storm of a, of a market. Transitioning out to real briefly, I just want to speak on this as we're hitting the hour point of the podcast. So we had some topics that are going to get punted to next week, uh, but not a problem there. We got very, very in the weeds here, of course, on the hair uh, segment of the show. But with that said, uh, types of affordable housing. So I just want to talk about this real briefly and just mention some options because we do play in the affordable space. We at Lone Star, we buy two types of deals, market rate deals, which are just down the fairway, non-nuance, just, you know, normal situation, no tax payments or anything like that. And then we buy affordable deals, which has some sort of a unique component with the tax payment structure to it. But there's capital A affordable, which is, uh, you know, things like Section 8, uh, LIHTC, low-income housing. Uh, and then there's lowercase a affordable, which is kind of the space that we play in. So Rob, as being more of an expert on this topic, do you mind just kind of talking about the distinctions there um, and how we kind of play in both? Yeah, the affordable space is nuanced and varied. It's kind of like a private club even because it's very specific, specialized information. And a lot of firms actually specialize in the affordable housing arena so we've dipped our toes in through like you said little a affordable where you don't go full-blown affordable housing projects like doing a hap contract or section 8 project-based vouchers or litech which stands for low-income housing tax credits that's section 42 
of the IRS code. So those are kind of heavier and those are called big A or capital A affordable. And so little A affordable are some of the things that we've done, which are nonprofit partnerships and state level, which are Texas state level property tax exemptions, like a lot of the PFC deals that we did over the last couple of years. And those are partnerships with local housing authorities. So these are where you have still income and rent restrictions for the property in exchange for property tax exemptions. So they're still very lucrative. They're still substantial as far as offering affordable housing to the community. And there's a lot of special compliance work that's necessary at the property level to ensure that the properties are following the affordable housing guidelines that are set out, but they're not quite as heavy and bureaucratic, if you will, as the big A stuff. With that being said, we are transitioning a couple of our deals in the portfolio to LIHTC or low-income housing tax credits. And these are going to be very exciting deals for us as we are doing this for the first time. It's going to be tremendous outcomes for our investors. But basically, these are going to look like buyouts where we're going to actually bring in low-income housing tax credit equity. So basically, what you the way that the government structured these deals is the equity for the projects are actually usually provided for by local banks or banks that need to meet their Community Reinvestment Act investment requirements. So that's CRA. So banks need to meet their CRA, which means they need to be able to, they have to put money into their local communities. And one of their favorite ways to do that actually is to invest in local affordable housing projects. And so what they do is they're putting in equity in the project, but they're actually not looking for any sort of equity-like return. They're actually only putting equity into the project so that they can get tax credits out. And these tax credits can be used to offset the taxes that they owe directly. So it's a one-to-one -one benefit. This is not like depreciation, meaning a tax credit means if you have a million dollars of taxes owed and you receive a million dollar tax credit from an affordable housing project, you actually offset your tax burden completely and you pay no tax. So this is super attractive for banks. And so low income housing tax credit projects uh, bring a bank in to provide the equity. And then the project generates 10 years worth of tax credits that go to the bank. And so this means there's actually no equity in the deal aside from the tax credit equity. So it's a very complex structure. There's a whole lot going on. I only know the very basics. Kent is spearheading the projects that we're working on. And it's nice that we've kind of gone from little A to now big A affordable with these uh, LIHTC deals. And I think that the affordable housing space has a lot of alpha because it is so complicated and not everyone's playing in the space. There's opportunity to create big wins for, for us and our investors. We find opportunity, of course, in the complexities of this. And I say this all the time, such a value and benefit to Lone Star Capital is the fact that Kent is the uh, co-founder and can navigate this from his acumen with the tax attorney side. So having that hat, being able to uh, navigate that side in, in that part of the world is so crucial. So I do have a question for you, though. It, it, this has prompted a thought for me. If Let's say this is a deal that we acquire on the front end, a, a light tech deal. How does a sponsor get paid? You know, where is their money for that if it's government bonds and, and such? You know, can you kind of walk through the value creation there? Because we're not raising money from investors and doing a quick flip or, you know, basically boosting up the, the value of the property. 
where does someone who wants to get into that space um, get financial compensation for their work and time and effort? Because naturally, there's probably a little bit more maintenance regarding this due to the tenant profile. This is, you know, government, um, you know, housing effectively, right? So um, can you kind of walk through the mechanics of that? Yeah. So these are really the long-term projects. So low-income housing tax credits or LIHTC, they're actually typically... So the the properties generate 10 years worth of tax credits. And so it's really critical to the validity of those tax credits that the requirements of the affordable housing restrictions and the like that you're spending the money that you need to on the renovations or the development project that you are actually restricting, that you're only renting units to uh, low-income households and that you have restricted rents. So you have to maintain all these restrictions and compliances through the first 10 years. It's really important that you hit the, through the 10 years because that's the period in which that tax credits are generated. And if you make a mistake and you get audited, the IRS can invalidate those tax credits and then the bank that partnered with you that gave you the money is now going to be super pissed at you because they aren't going to be able to use those tax credits and they're going to come after you for damages. So you have to make sure that you keep up the compliance so that those tax credits are good for those 10 years. But the way that a LIHTC deal works is the initial use period or the initial compliance period is 15 years. So it's a real long-term play to launch and operate a low-income housing tax credit development or acquisition rehab because you're in it for the 15-year initial compliance period. And then there's another 15-year extended use period that is somewhat optional. So the, you're talking about 15 to 30-year deals that these are. These are long-term deals and the compensation is long-term as well because you get paid as the developer of the project, you get paid an upfront development fee, but often that developer fee is de deferred over a longer period of time. You know, obviously they don't want to just pay you upfront and then you walk away from the deal. So they want your skin in the game over the 10 years. So you'll see the developer fee paid out over the first 10 years or as far as the availability of cash flow. So the developer fee might be paid out of free cash flow. But the way that these deals are underwritten is there's a ton of debt on these deals that are backed by federal bonds. And then you have the tax credit equity that comes in. So your cap stack is generally speaking some sort of federal backed debt and then tax credit equity. And that makes up your entire capital stack. And it's very tight. And usually there's not really any free cash flow from these deals because you're restricting rents. So what little cash flow does come out usually does come to the developer to pay out their deferred developer fee. And then there's a negotiation on the back end with your tax credit investor. So with the bank, as far as when you sell the property, who gets the profit for, on the sale and all this sort of stuff. So there's a lot of negotiation that's specific to every individual uh, partnership agreement there. So that's kind of the general economics of a, of a LIHTC development. We're thinking about the breakdown of that because now, as I said, the benefit to me being on the show is I get to sit back and ask the questions that probably a lot of people would like to know, um, but don't get the access to. So I feel like every single time I'm here, I get a learning lesson and an education and schooling from one of the best of the best. So thank you for that breakdown. With that said, do you bring any outside investor capital to these deals? So, okay, wow. So it's all just government and sponsor and bank debt. Yeah, there's the the project is entirely owned by the tax credit equity. So essentially, a bank 
is coming in and providing the tax credit equity. And then the debt is usually HUD debt or Fannie debt. And that makes up the debt part of the capital stack. Very cool. Well, thank you for the breakdown there. And thank you, of course, for everyone who is listening to the show. Episode 34 of the Capital Spotlight Podcast. Once again, Rob Beardsley and myself will be in Phoenix for Race Fest, as well as BEC, as well as Houston in between that. So if you're looking to meet at Race Fest here coming up in 10 days from when this is released, please email me, craig at lsare.com. We have a calendar link. We also have two dinners at some of the best restaurants in Phoenix. I'm, of course, a Phoenix local, so I'm choosing at my discretion what I feel is the best. Uh, but we're absolutely thrilled for, for that. Uh, and then, as I said, Houston coming up March 12th. If you are, in fact, an investor or potentially a capital raiser that wants to meet up with us, uh, currently working with us, or would like to, at some point, learn about working with us, of course, email me. We can get you details sunk up for that. And then finally, BEC is middle, early April. I believe it's the 10th and 11th. We have, of course, going to have some incredible restaurants there. We're all about whining and dining and taking care of our investors and partners. So if you are, in fact, future investor and partner, let us know. And then, of course, I'll be in New York uh, at the end of March in early April. And if you're looking to connect then, we're also having potentially, I think, yeah, no, our mixer on April 4th. Um, so if you think you are potentially a good fit, hitting the criteria that I just mentioned before, uh, that is applicable to this. Of course, email me and possibly can meet you in person and, and link up then. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of Capital Spotlight Podcast, and we'll see you next week.